I'm Katie. And I'm Michael. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Um, okay. You ready to rock, man? I who am. Got, who do you got for us today? So I've got two women today, Ooh. both of whom share a connection with Fisk University in Tennessee. I don't know Fisk University. Um, it is a historically black college and university uh, mm. and is founded in Nashville in 18... Oh, let's see if I get the... In 1868, um, as the, yeah, so think, think about that. Yeah. Civil War has ended not two years ago. Yeah. Or, sorry, sorry, no, I'm lying to you. I'm, I'm 100% lying to you. Um, so the university, the school is founded in 1866. So like a, like a year, a year after the Civil War ends. That's great. What? Uh Um, Civil War ends in sixty five. I'm sorry. Am I gonna be the I'm gonna be that person and be like, it wasn't sixty three? Sixty one to sixty five. Four 63? years. Sixty one. No. Yeah. Oh, because he wins re election and it would have to mm-hmm. be in an even year. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. In my head I was like, sixty three, it's all over. Incorrect. Mm mm. Two more years to go. So sixty five it's over. Okay, great. So the yeah. year after. So the year after we're um, in college. Yeah, it is. That's pretty impressive. Like, the, the 14th Amendment is not ratified for two more years. So, technically, there's still a question Dang. if African Americans are even citizens yet. Oof. Um, not up for debate. So, they super are. Okay. Yeah. But they, um, they didn't know that. They didn't know that. We're still working on that. Um, but it's founded um, by a group um, called the American Missionary Association, which is... Uh, white, it's predominantly white northern Christian groups um, who are helping mm-hmm. to build um, schools and churches and like medical facilities for newly freed slaves in southern states. Really put the money where their mouth is, sort of thing. Basically, um, you know the, like, the abolitionist people. Exactly. Yeah, it's that is that all of the energy of that group now having gotten the abolition of slavery figured out. Uh-huh. Finally, they sort of transitioned into great. Now we're going to sort of help everyone get on their feet and like mm. do as much work as we can in that end. Um, and then, so one of the people who's going to benefit really directly from that is Ella Shepard. Um, who is going to end up playing a really crucial role, not just in the history of Fisk as a university, but also mm-hmm. in the African-American musical tradition in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we will be listening to some, like, clutch early 1900s recordings in this episode. Good use of the word clutch. It feels appropriate. Feels like 1992 for a second. <laughs> it was good. It's fine. I'm I'm not hip. We've this is evidently clear, I think. Um so Ella is born in February 1851 on the Hermitage Plantation 
which is where is both formerly Andrew Jackson's plantation. Um, you should remember most American presidents owned people I don't like prior him at to all. the 1860s. No, he's the worst. I just I categorically just, the worst. I don't like him. But we don't have to think about him because we're just okay, she's great. there. Um, her father's named Simon. Her mother's named Sarah. Um, her dad has purchased his freedom because that's a th- thing. Um, mm-hmm. And when he tries to purchase his wife and his daughter's freedom, uh, the owners of the plantation refuse to free his wife. Um, so she basically the yeah, or at why? least the why would you see that? <sighs> oh wait, don't worry though. It okay. gets it gets better. So her mom doesn't like obviously doesn't deal well with that whole moment. Um, and so this, as the story goes, at least, and I again, I think this might be a little apocryphal. She's like, "Hi, I'm a person, and I deserve." Yeah. She's yeah. Like, hey, I'm a person, and I deserve dignity. I mean, about that. One would hope, but this is the 1850s in the American South, so the answer to that one is going to be a hard and fast nope. Um, So she takes her daughter, Ella, down to the river and is like, well, if we can't be free, like, I don't want my daughter to live a life of enslavement. I'm just going to drown her. Uh, Oh, no, Michael. I know. I'm sorry. This is going to be a kind of dark episode in some points okay um but there's a succeed no so there's an older woman down there who stops her and says um that the lord is going to have need of that child and so she's like okay this is a sign does not drown her daughter um they eventually they let her dad purchase her freedom even though they won't let him purchase her mom's freedom and so her and her dad are going to move first to Nashville, um, but then following an outbreak of anti-black violence in 1856, they're going to move to Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, And it's in Cincinnati that her musical talents are going to just blossom. Great. Uh, So she sings really incredibly. She plays the piano, like, stunningly well. Um, Her father is going to buy her a piano so she can play at home and at this point like owning a piano is not like a an easy thing it is a expensive musical instrument to bring into your home um he's gonna pay for piano lessons for her um she's even gonna manage to score vocal lessons with a really prominent white vocal teacher uh on the condition that she comes at night and only uses the back door so still lovely casual (laughs) American racism. Um, So her father passes away in 1866, sort of right at the end of the Civil War. And so she's supporting her family uh, by teaching music. Uh, She plays piano at local events. um, And then she also works as a maid occasionally. But Mm -hmm. she wants to further her education. And so she takes the money that she saved from teaching music, which at this point is $6, Um, and goes back to Nashville to start studying at the Fisk Free Colored School, which will eventually become Fisk University. Mm -hmm. Um, While she is there, um, 
she's going to support herself by offering music lessons. Uh, the treasurer of the university, a man named George White, who also is the choral director for the school, notices really quickly that, like, damn, she can play. So he's going to hire her to be the accompanist and the assistant musical director for the choir. Um, and this is going to turn out to be a pretty big deal uh, because in a couple of years, the choir is going to go on what is probably the first tour of black choral musicians singing black music in American history. Whoa. So like... That's a big first. Yeah. So a little bit of context for this. So it's the early 1870s. The school has been around for about a half decade now, um, and it's struggling financially because there is such a huge demand for education that it starts, I think, with a maybe like 400 students, and within its first year, student body doubles to over 900. So it is trying to expand, but there's just not enough money to do all of the things it needs to do. Um, and so George White, who, because he's the treasurer, is the one who's seeing all of these financial things. He's like, okay, we need to raise a lot of money really quickly for the university. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the ways you raise money at this point is like, you get church groups across the country to like, take up your cause and then they'll fundraise for you and get you money and stuff like that and they're doing that but it's not bringing in quite the like funding they need to support all of their work uh, and at the same time he's on campus sort of really working closely as the choir director with his students um, and oftentimes we'll hear them singing spirituals which at this point they're not really widely known outside of um, sort of slave communities in the South or the, and at this point um, sort of formerly enslaved people because they're not sung in front of audiences, they're not performed, and they're rarely ever, if ever sung in front of white people because they are still at this point just songs of resistance against sort of the slave system and so you wouldn't want to be singing them in front of white people. Yeah. Um, and so he hears them and is like, this is incredible. Maybe this is the thing. Maybe we go and sing these songs for white audiences, particularly in the North, and use that as like a fundraising tool. And there's, I mean, definitely like a bit of the sort of exoticization of like, well, it's like black spiritual music that like maybe like white people haven't heard maybe they'll think it's like super interesting because they don't know it um but it's also i think a really deep appreciation for the musical tradition um and in particular it's he asks um ella shepherd to arrange all of these pieces so obviously prior to this point there's no like musical notation for them they're just songs that are passed down orally yeah. but if you're gonna have a choir perform them at least like performing them in like the western european tradition they need to be in four-part harmony they need to be written down they need to be able to be like accompanied by piano and other instruments um, and so that is like an incredible amount of creative work to take these songs that have never been 
written down and arranged in that way and yeah. do that work. Um, and she's the one who ends up doing most of that. So as the sort of company is assembling, they're getting their singers together to go on this tour. Her job is to arrange all of the songs that they're going to sing. That's amazing. I guess my question is like, um, which you might not know is like how much editing happened. Like, at this time, it sounds like that might require, if it's, it has to be in four-part harmony. Was it in four-part harmony before and they're just, like, writing it down? Or did they have to adjust the sound and, like, the style of what they were doing before to accommodate the audience? Yeah, and I don't, I don't know too, too much about it. The bit I was reading um, is that there is, there's a lot of sort of complicated work going on in terms of accommodating the white audiences that they were singing for. Gross. So the, yeah. So there, in, in that there's sort of two things happening simultaneously that are sort of at odds with each other. In one vein, it's about making it formal. It's about making it crisp and clear and clean and making it sound like as close to like the Western choral tradition as you can manage it so in that like they dress exactly like you would expect like a professional choir to dress like very yeah like clean cut um they didn't sing with sort of a overly inflected accent or anything like that it was sort of very crisp clear diction um and very much in the like traditional soprano alto tenor bass arrangements um which from what I understand, it's it's not really the like the way it would be performed by like any stretch of the imagination in its original context. Yeah. But is the way that they think will make it most palatable to the audiences that they think they're gonna be performing for. Yeah. Um and it's a really it's an interesting question that sort of continues to this day, um, because I mean, they basically begin the spiritual as a genre of music for choral performance in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's now, it is sort of seen as like one of the defining genres of American choral music. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of like high school and um, college choirs will perform spirituals as part of their repertoire. And often like white, predominantly like white suburban high schools will do it. And there's always this question of like the ethics of performing it like that. Because oftentimes it'll sort of be like the more relaxed like fun song with air quotes around it where that might not be taken quite as seriously or done quite as rigorously um but there is this sort of strong tradition of it being like performed as very sort of like traditionally rigorous whatever that would mean choral music Mm -hmm. and so there is like there is a way to do it i think like respectfully by treating it as the like serious genre that it is um and this group um from fisk that she's a part of is they're basically sort of setting all of the foundations for that um and letting it sort of make its way into sort of mainstream white culture in a way that it can sort of gain the acceptance Mm -hmm. that at that time it would need in order to survive in the broader american musical culture Yep. Yeah. Um, so they're going to go on tour in 1871. Um, it's going to be... Um, Did you say this? Is this a southern tour? No. So this is a northern tour. Shocking. Um, okay. Yes. Yeah, so they're um, 
they're going to go primarily to northern cities. Um, they start in Ohio, but they'll be in Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York, New England. Um, and Shepard is going to go with them as their vocal coach and accompanist. Um, and sort of on their early performances, people aren't quite sure what to make of them. Like white audiences have never seen black people perform before. Their only exposure is sort of blackface minstrelsy performances. So they're used to white actors playing these like incredibly over the top racist stereotypes of black people. And so to see like black singers on stage, just like singing music is something that they don't really know how to deal with. Yeah. Um, and so, like, really mixed reception. It, like, first concert doesn't go really well, and so they have this moment of, like, okay, let's, like, all take a breath, like, take the night, like, we'll come back in the morning, we'll, like, pull ourselves together and keep going. Um, and when the director comes back, he's like, I got a thing for us. We need a, we need a good name. Um, mm. And the name they settle on is the Jubilee Singers. Oh, um, cool. Which is speaking to this uh, tradition in the Old Testament where every 50 years you would declare a jubilee, everyone's debts would be forgiven, all the slaves would be free, and it sort of, like, wipes the slate clean. So obviously there's a lot of that, like, imagery and I did not know that that's there. where that came from. Yeah, I didn't either, but it seems very appropriate knowing that, that that's mm-hmm. the name they picked. Um, and sort of that is, in a way, the sort of kickoff of, like, things going well. So they're going to go to Boston and perform in the World's Peace Jubilee and International Musical Festival. People in the 19th century really need shorter names, but we'll get there. Um, They had nothing better to do. They could say all of them and not worry about it. So true. Um, In 1872, they get invited by President Ulysses S. Grant to perform at the White House. Nice. Um, They'll also perform for members of Congress. They travel to New York City, but they perform in that region for a couple of weeks. Um, and in their first tour, they raise over $40,000 for the university. Which, like, solid. is twice what they thought they needed to raise. So There's so much money at that time, too. Yeah, it's absurd. Um, by the time they finish touring, they're going to raise about $150,000 for the university, which is about $3.5 million. Nice. It's like, nothing to sneeze at. Um, not at all. It's not like totally great. Obviously, there's the difficulty of being accepted by white audiences. Um, they're a group of young black people traveling in the 1870s, so they're going to experience a lot of discrimination in transportation and housing, just like everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. And they also have a really grueling tour schedule. Like they're performing every night. They're traveling all the time. Like anyone who's been on a tour just knows how exhausting that is mm. on top of all of the other things they're dealing with. Yeah. But they're going to keep going at it. In 73, they go to Europe. They're going to perform all over the place, including for Queen Victoria. Whoa. Who, like, apparently... She got around, didn't she? Oh, yeah. She is... Everybody went to see her. Yeah, and she really likes them, apparently. She even commissions a portrait of them. And it, like, gives that to them as a gift. Um, Oh, that's sweet. So in Jubilee Hall on Fisk's campus, which is named after the Jubilee Singers and was paid for with the money they raised, there is this large portrait of them donated by Queen Victoria. 
just chilling there. Just rocking out. Yeah. Um, oh, Vicky. They'll tour in Europe again from 1875 to 1878. Um, and the original group is going to disband at the end of that tour. They're exhausted. They've been out on the road for years, singing, performing. Um, and Shepard, throughout all that, is with them. She acts as the musical director when George White isn't present, uh, is continuing to arrange new songs for the group. Um, she's going to sort of retire in 1882. Um, and by the time she retires, she's arranged over 100 songs for a performance by the group. Nice. Um, and unfortunately, there are no recordings, at least none available online of the original singers performing, but there is a recording. Um, so the group disbands in 78, but pretty soon reforms and becomes a regular fixture of the university and tours pretty consistently up through the present day. Um, but because um, Jim Crow laws are getting progressively stricter in this period, um, they don't feel like it's safe for women to tour with the group anymore. So it goes from being a mixed voices choir to a male quartet that is going to sort of take the same arrangements but perform them with four male voices instead mm-hmm. of male and female voices. Um, and then, yeah, it really does. In many um, ways. But the male uh, quartet records an album in 1909 um, that the Library of Congress has digitized. Um, and the a lot of the, like, really sort of bedrock traditional songs um from this genre are their arrangements so um the biggest one of course is swing low sweet chariot wow which is on this recording um and so i'm gonna cue up just a little bit of it for us to listen to yes please okay this is recorded when uh this is recorded in 1909 wow yeah so here we go. so crazy yeah it's i mean it's kind of amazing too like how similar that is to the version that i have in my head Hmm. um i'm just struck by like we just heard somebody 110 years old yeah like that's so weird it's kind of incredible that's so Uh, weird but and cool. I and I will I'll give a quick pitch because Library of Congress does some really cool things. But this is on their um, national jukebox, which is a digitized set of historical recordings that are available for free on the internet. So yeah. you can go, um, you can listen. I think there are like eight songs on this track that you can go listen to. So they've got a couple more arrangements, but there's a whole really cool range of music to listen to from them. So when was that inducted into the? Library of Congress. 
Um, so this got brought in, ooh, would have been pretty recently. I think this program is uh, like mid-2010s. Um, is so when they, they would decided. have never even known that it would have lasted this long? No, I don't think so. Or imagine like the country that <laughs> treated them so unjustly would prioritize their voices as being worthwhile and keeping in a archive of American culture. That's yeah. pretty freaking amazing. It's really, really cool. That's kind and... of like justice in a way. I don't know. Historical justice. Like it's not it doesn't excuse the like horrible treatment, but I, I appreciate that at least now like they're part of the culture in a way that like they were validated later. It doesn't yeah. make up for it, but it's ni- it's a nice kind of coda. Yeah, it really is. And especially because, it, like, to think, like, I don't think they could have imagined, like, the impact they were going to have mm-hmm. on a, just, like, American musical culture uh, that this one group has really sort of set the gold standard for a lot of mm-hmm. what we think of as, like, really foundational American music. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah that's crazy that's the kind of moments in history where you're like oh i wish we could talk to them right now yeah do you know what i mean right? oh i wish they could see this like i wish um they could just see that moment that you played their song to me over the internet <laughs> do you know what i mean <laughs> as we try to like like oh my god how much would your brain explode and I think- what would make our brains explode in 110 years? I obviously like can't even right? begin. I wonder to what it'll be. Oh, I, that's so cool. Yeah, I think what I, I what I really want to do. I'm going to see if I can pull it up quickly mm-hmm. enough to make this happen. Um, but there's a contemporary American composer named um, Moses Hogan who arranges, um, who does like contemporary arrangements of traditional spirituals. And I want to see if I can find. Uh, his arrangement of Swing Low Sweet Chariot because it sounds like you can you can hear the sort of influence of the original Jubilee Singers arrangement in his arrangement and I want to see if I can pull that up yep here we go so we're just going to listen really quickly to this because it sounds you can hear the influence I think it's really kind of amazing Thank you. 
So yeah, you can kind of hear like a very similar chord progression. Um, yeah. A lot of those really big jumps are almost identical. Uh, and th- that sort of very clear, crisp way of singing it that you would associate with sort of the like Western choral tradition, but that is very much a part of how this is performed in concert. Um, but it's not the end of Ella Shepard. So she retires from the group in 1882 and moves back to Nashville where she's going to marry George Washington Moore, who is one of the most prominent black ministers in the country at this point. They move to D.C. together, uh, and she campaigns really actively against uh, saloons and the proliferation of alcohol in African-American neighborhoods in the city, um, sort of part of the black temperance movement that happens in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Um, She's eventually going to move back to Nashville and teach music at Fisk until her death in 1915. Um, And one of the like really beautiful parts of her story is um, she, after the Civil War, is going to find her mother, who had been sold to a plantation in Mississippi. Oh, um, and she's going to bring her mom up to live with her and her family in Nashville. Oh, my God, Michael, you buried the lead on that one. Well, I thought it would be nice to have like an, a, a little like treat that's so at the sweet. end. Yeah. I do I... not think that's how that would end mm-hmm. with, with the mother line, the storyline part. Yeah. Since that was super bleak. Super bleak, but bringing it back. um, And there's actually, there's a school named in her honor in Chicago um, that teaches music to underserved elementary and middle school students um, on the south side of Chicago, who's sort of continuing her legacy of music as, like, social empowerment. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. And also just, like, I never think about... I mean, I I couldn't tell you right now, but like Swing Low Sweet Chariot, coming from a slave tradition, right? Yeah. That first step to kind of make that quote unquote palatable to white audiences. I don't know. That's just an interesting part of that story that I'd never thought of before. And like to think that it's like this person did that. And that's the reason I know that song today. Yeah. That's kind of crazy to think about. Do you know what I mean? Totally. And it's in a... mm, I don't know. Continue? Yeah. No, it's interesting. Because in a way, like, the normal progression is dominant white musical culture finds something that another group is doing. They're like, oh, cool. We like that. We're going to take that and appropriate it. Like, I think, like, Elvis, I think, is, like, a peak example of that. Yeah. Um, But this is a moment where it's like, no, we are claiming ownership of our musical tradition and we're going to decide how it enters sort of mainstream white musical culture. And obviously there are like some concessions and the, the problematic nature of like appeasing a white audience in the 1870s. Yeah. But there's like this sort of central thing, which is like, it is black musicians who are taking ownership of that process and who are actually doing well, that is work. Is it appeasing or is it also just being like appeasing, but also like, um, yes, playing the game. But also, like, representation, as we said. Like, uh, there are black people at the time living in North New England. 
So, like, seeing other African-Americans come through and, like, you know, all that kind of... They were playing to white audiences, but, like, black audiences knew of them as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, like, just the, the benefits weren't just black to white. I think there's also, like... Anything that happens when you when you uh, have two cultures intermingling, like everything's beneficial. Isn't it a Mark Twain quote that if you travel, like bigotry can't stand if you actually travel the world. Like the second you go somewhere and meet with a culture that you were unfamiliar with, you can't hate them because you know them now. You know what I mean? Yeah, that seems that seems. I mean, right. white people like to test that really well, but at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of white audiences even like paying to see African American entertainers in that way was probably a new thing. Oh, in that definitely. Way. So, yeah, you could just feel like they didn't know what the result would be, but they were going to try it. Like, I don't know. That's just amazing. Yeah, yeah and it's... to travel around at that time, I bet it was terrifying. Yeah, I can't even imagine. <sighs> um, but the so the cool thing is like obviously like this is a, a huge legacy, um, but there's actually a show being developed in DC right now called Jubilee that is about the story of the Jubilee singers and includes a lot of the original music in it. Oh, cool! Um, yeah, so I'm really excited because I want to go see it when I'm in DC. Yeah, that um, sounds great. But it seems really really exciting. Um, and I think I also just decided I'm just going to leave it here for the week. I'm going to save my other woman for another time and we're just gonna end on this like delightful positive note note. okay cool jubilee what a jubilee it was you want to take a break let's take a break then we'll come back and we'll do yours all right cool you ready to do this oh i'm so set okay so i want to start first michael with this quote that jen found for us while we were talking Thank you, Chad. The, the Mark Twain quote is, Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Oh, Mark. Just oh, Samuel ahead. Clemens, you little so-and-so. He knew what he was talking about sometimes. Um. Okay, you ready for mine? Yeah, hit me. I am realizing now that I don't know how to pronounce her name. That's so, always a great place to start. We are in the Philippines, and the Philippines has a lot of, like, interesting... They are what I think of as, like, a very interesting melting pot themselves, because they have all of this, like, Spanish influence, and then they're this Indonesian uh, vibe, East Asian vibe of place, but then they've been colonized so much that there's a weird... Not weird, I'm sorry, that's pejorative, but, like, there's an interesting tradition with a lot of um, their culture... So I apologize, first and foremost, that I did not do a deep dive into Filipino culture, but I do find it fascinating because they are kind of like America in a lot of ways. Um, so help me out here, team. J-O-S-E-F-A. Josefa? Because it would be Josef in, if I'm doing it like Spanish style, mm-hmm. or it's like Josefa, Josefa. Yanis Escoda. So it's like got this like Spanish feel to the language, but I don't know if that's fair and if it's Filipino or not. So I apologize. Um, because her mother's name was Mercedes and her father's name is Gabriel. So I'm assuming it's Josefa. Um, 
which you know what they say about assuming. But if anybody knows, please let me know. Josefa Yanis Escoda was born in the Philippines. Uh, oh my gosh, did I delete the date? Okay, it's like early uh, 20th century. Um, okay, she so is post, mm-hmm. so um, American colonial period. Question sure. Mark. Yeah, they're there. Oh, the Americans are there for sure. Okay, uh, cool, cool, cool. She's the oldest of seven children. Super fun. Boy. I have their names, but we're not going to go into it. Her her nickname was Peppa, P-E-P-A, which I found so cute. Um, and apparently she had a very idyllic childhood. Uh, she was raised Christian. She took that very seriously. Her mother was very sweet and loving and taught her children about um, what I consider like a very nice Christian faith of service and um uh, kindness and helping your fellow man. And you could tell she kind of really took that to heart and took it very seriously in her, in her, uh, childhood and in her young life. She, uh, was apparently very sweet, active, precocious, all the things that make you think somebody's going to be a go-getter. And boy, does she, she excels in school. She's the valedictorian, sorry, the valedictorian in grade school. And the salutatorian in high school, which is that number two when you're a salutatorian? I think so. I was neither. Can you tell? <laughs> Same. Okay. Um, I don't even remember who valedictorian was. I'm sure you were great. Uh, I don't remember your speeches. But anyway, okay, so she's great. She's killing it in school. Um, she goes to, she continues her education into college and gets a teaching degree, graduating with honors in 1919 in Manila. Um, she earns a high school teacher certificate from the University of Philippines in the 22. So she's just like, boom, school, aced it. Boom, school, aced it. I'm going to help other kids ace it. I'm great at teaching. <clears throat> Amazing. Pardon me. She becomes a social worker. Uh, with the Philippine chapter of the American Red Cross. So there is an American presence in the Philippines at this time. Clearly, if the Red Cross is, like, talking. Oh, she was born in 1898. Thank you, Jen. <laughs> um, so, um, due to, like, the colonial environment of the Philippines, um, there's actually a pretty good relationship with the United States at this time. I mean, good is relative, right? It benefits Josefa because she gets to go to the United States to get a master's degree. So she goes there. um, She goes to Columbia University. She gets a degree in sociology in 1925. I mean, just the momentum is killer. Um, Wait, um, I I know I I said I wasn't going to do my other woman, but I just want to say that she also got a master's degree in social work in from Columbia in the mid twenties. Do you think they knew each other? Oh my god, I really hope they did. Really good chance. They probably ran in the same circles. I imagine it would be hard not to. I know. That's I mean, crazy. How many, also, like how many women were at Columbia University in the sociology program in the nineteen twenties? Probably not. You a probably cleave to each other. Um, she actually got involved with other foreign students who were there and participated in the International House Project in New York. Uh, And she started to do speaking engagements and was, like, very um, passionate about talking about uh, the needs of uh, those who were less fortunate. And the the main thing about her that she always stuck to was she wore traditional Filipino dress. So she was always kind of a standout, and she she didn't try to westernize herself. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. 
and she thought this was beneficial because it would expose people to Filipino culture, but in like a way that would make it safe is not the word I want to use, but like it would promote interest in her culture. And then she was able to like comport herself in a way that made her an advocate for the Philippines. I don't know. She was thinking of herself as a, as an emblem and as mm -hmm. a, a representative, even as though she wasn't necessarily, even though she wasn't necessarily like put in the United States in that role. Mm -hmm. She goes to the women's international league for peace in 1925. And she meets Antonio Escoda. And that's how she gets her new last name because they get married and they have two kids and, uh, yeah, they do great. She, okay, let's segue. Um, she goes back to the Philippines in the 1940s after she receives training in Girl Scouting in the USA. So, scouting. Let's talk about it. Do you know yeah, what was say. this least week? Was Girl Scout Day? Did you know this? I did not. I have mm -hmm. to admit, scouting is something about which I am almost entirely ignorant. You weren't a member? You weren't I a Boy Scout? I was not. I... Contrary to popular belief, never a Boy Scout. Did not interest you? Was not, not a, a part of your childhood? Not a part of my childhood. Not a big fan of, like, all-male organizations. Doesn't quite vibe with me. Although, I, they're, I guess they're not anymore. They're not anymore. No, they're trying to be just Scouts. But the Girl Scouts are still Girl Scouts. And it was a whole I thing. dig that. Um, there's a really good podcast about it called Stuff Mom Never Told You about Ooh. Scouts that laid it out pretty well. Um, you do whatever you want to do. Girl Scouts is a really great organization. Boy Scouts is a really great organization. There's maybe some bad blood between them recently about <laughs> the whole, like, who gets who. But, um, I think, uh, let anybody in and, like, you could kind of tell the culture of a troop and that's what you should base it on. Do you know what I mean? Like, you can tell if your kid's going to do good or, like, be friends with other kids in a particular troop, so. Mm -hmm. Did you I scout? was in, I did, I scouted. My brother scouted. My brother's an Eagle Scout. I enjoyed it. Uh, I met some good friends there. There was obviously a preoccupation with cookie sales. But, I mean, what did that teach you? It told you how to market. It told you how to, like, find a demographic. It taught you how to organize and, like, execute delivery. It taught you financial uh, aspects and economy of stuff. And, you know, I thought it was really, I mean, I got a lot out of it. Uh, did you, did your parents make you do all the selling on your own? Or did they facilitate you through these, like, amazing workplace things where, like, someone's like, Hey, my daughter's selling cookies. Here's a form. They'll there was the an element of that, but them. I remember vividly my parents being like, "You have to. We will take the. We will take you to our workplace, but you are selling them at our workplace." Do you know okay. what I mean? They would provide mm -hmm. the avenue, but then I was supposed to go around and actually like advocate for myself. So I had to go up to strangers with with um, supervision. I wasn't like on my own, but I had to like go up to strangers and be like, "Hi!" And I had to sell it. You know what I mean? It wasn't like they just took the thing into work and let everybody fill it out. Although that is pretty nice. I mean, mm -hmm. as a pa patron of the Girl Scouts now, I appreciate that if anybody works with me. Um, Same. Uh, yeah, but I remember that being a thing. Um, and then we would do the thing. The other part would be like we would go to areas like. Um, 
you see them outside grocery stores and stuff. I think we did mm-hmm. them at church a lot. We would we would set up a little table outside church. And I remember it being a very early memory of like having to haggle with a woman who was like not ready to pay whatever it was, two seventy five at the time. She's like, oh, oh, when I would pay for cookies, it was $1.50. And I was like, I don't know how to tell you about the free market, ma'am. I'm seven. But <laughs> can you just buy these cookies so I can go camping? Um, I think they're they're $5 now. Yeah, they're delicious. And you're supporting girls. So just buy the damn cookies. Okay. Got, what, no what eight-year-old your... wants to talk to you about why they're priced the way they are. They had no say in it. They're just trying to execute the plan. Yeah. Th- so this is, I think, the most important question. What is your favorite kind of cookie? Thin mint. Good. That was why, the is right that a, why is that a question? Some of these people up in here are like tagalongs, or they're a liar. I'm like not a thin pose, mints are the best. but thin mints are the best. Also, a frozen, a frozen thin mint. You know what's really good? Straight Deep out of the fried freezer. thin mints. Oh my god! I Straight out of the freezer. They got that little bit of like chalky color on them. Oh, they're so good. They're so good. Yep. Yeah, tagalongs is nonsense. And like Savannah smiles. <laughs> get out of here. Nobody needs you. It's fine. You do your job, but it's fine. Or like the the weird people that buy shortbread. Why I don't buying, get it. Why are you buying I shortbread? Just, I don't. I don't understand it. Just eat bread. It's a bland <laughs> cookie. Whatever. <laughs> buy your cookies. It's fine. So anyway, I was a Girl Scout. Um, yeah. So the Girl Scouts were founded in 1912 uh, by Juliet Gordon Lowe. And it was organized in response to the fact that the Boy Scouts were a thing. And so Juliet's like, um, we can do that. Thank you. So it started with 18 members. And within months, uh, members were hiking through the woods in knee-length blue uniforms, playing basketball, going on camping trips. And in 1916, Lowe even established um, an aviation badge, which you know the time period, right? When it's like, mm-hmm. ooh, we should figure out how to fly. Uh, even before women could vote, there were Girl Scouts. Um by 1920, there were 70,000 members in America, and in 1923, it starts to branch out, and they have some in Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and it really starts to grow as a movement of educating and instilling value and inspiration to young women in the same way that Boy Scouts does. It's a social atmosphere. It's a practical skill devising arena oh my god mm-hmm. what am i trying to say the promotion of like physical activity mental stimulation uh the achievement of goals you know all these good things to bring up strong moral character in young women did it have a lot of problems heck yes heck yes it did because it was the 19 teens in america but it started with a good goal by the 1940s Back to our lady, Josefa. She's gotten training on... She's like, Girl Scouting, that seems like a great thing to bring back to my country. I know girls. They would love this. Let's do it Filipino style. Um, So she comes back. She starts to train young women to become Girl Scout leaders and then to organize Girl Scout troops. And uh, by 1940, she becomes the group... uh, The Girl Scouts of the Philippines National Executive. So, 1940. Great time to be alive in the world. Some stuff's about to go down. What do you know about the Philippines in the 1940s, Michael? 
Uh, they're going to get invaded, and it is not going to be a good couple of years oh my God, well to said. live in the Philippines. That's super what happens. I didn't know anything. I was like, I have I have a vague understanding of World War II. It's obviously very America-centric. But go figure, I did not have the biggest military defeat of the Americans at the forefront of my knowledge of World War II, because we don't like to highlight that. Yeah, no, um, it did not go well for us. So, spoiler alert, sorry about that. Let's talk about it. So, World War II, uh, I believe we all know how it goes down. Um, Michael, can I be terrible? Is it December 7th, 1941 is Pearl Harbor? Yes. Great. So, on December 8th, 1941, Japanese uh, launch a surprise attack on the Philippines. At which time, the Philippines has, like, a um, an American base or like an american presence so it's seen as like a broom like a we've just been hit by pearl harbor they're now like sucking us in the kind of neutral zones that we're all into um also from all accounts or like based on my very limited research it wasn't a necessarily negative relationship between america and the philippines at this time clearly like if oh, Josefa like, is an example, like, she's bringing back things from America. She went and got a degree from them. She's bringing back Girl Scout stuff to them. Like, there's a, there's a yeah, rapport it's, it's growing. Definitely still, like, a colony It's colony-esque. It's a little more, adva- it's not, like, true, like, 1700s colony. It's definitely, like, a 20th century vibe. You yeah. You know what I mean? Like, 20th century colony vibe. Yeah. Yeah, there's some trading going on. There's, like, some subversive stuff. But at the same time, by all accounts, like, there's... Based on what I'm about to tell you, like, there seems to be a good rapport with the United States by some people. Let's just cover our bases. I'm sure some people did not care for them. I'm sure some Americans in the Philippines were total dicks. But anyway. Would check out. Needless to say... Filipino people and Americans did not want the Japanese to invade them because nobody wants to get invaded. Um, That doesn't really stop Japan. They're sort of like living their best life at this time. So they uh, get invaded. uh, Battles commence. Um, It basically ends with like... Final surrender of the United States and Filipino forces happens in May 1942. So just to be clear, we surrendered to Japan in the Philippines. Yes. That is the thing that I never knew. Because, like, surrender has a different connotation when you're an American. Do you find that to be true? I think we're not big fans of it. Hey, let's talk about how we learned about Vietnam. What did you learn about Vietnam? I think the big takeaway was we left. We didn't lose. Yes. Yes, Michael. Even that, it was like it got to that point in history class. And I remember my teacher being like, that's too modern. We're not going to talk about it. Yep. Because it, it's, it's too recent. People it's too recent. About it. Basically, like I lived through it. I don't want to talk to you about it. It was complicated. That was my education on Vietnam. And so it's been very much an ongoing like, what actually happened? Does anybody know? I'm getting a lot of opinions. Um, but I guess that has to happen. Anyway, I digress. Okay. Japan occupies the Philippines. Josefa has, um, as I said, like a genuine, uh, appreciation and value for human life. So she doesn't understand. I don't think she, I don't, this is a lot of conjecture. I don't think she understands war. I don't think she understands people that fight wars. I don't think she sees any moral good to it. I don't think she understands 
nationalism in that way. So she is like, I'm not into this. I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. And that means valuing human life and helping my friends and um, not letting other people suffer. So what that happens is that, or whoa, what sentence did I say? What that (laughs) entails is she and her husband start to begin activities of supplying supplies to war prisoners and American uh, internees in what I have seen described as concentration camps, but I'm sure like prisoner of war camps in World War II in the Philippines, not a great place to be. No, very, Um, very much not. So she is sort of a member of this resistance movement that is providing aid to those that are suffering the most. American and Filipino alike. There is this kind of, like, a lot of places in World War II, there's a resistance movement. There's um, an underground war effort trying to fight an occupying force. And that's no different in the Philippines. There's definitely, like, this American and Filipino alliance happening to overthrow the occupying force of the Japanese. Um, it was called the People's Army Against the Japanese. It's about 30,000 people. Pretty clear naming. A lot of guerrilla warfare, a lot of, a lot of rough times. Um, she and her husband are, um, yeah, kind of at the forefront of this because she wasn't exactly subtle about her need to help other people. Um, Sounds about let's right. See, okay, we're gonna get a little dark, and I'm sorry about it, but. Um, this lieutenant saw her in January uh, of 1944 with her husband, and she gave him this message. She says, I have done my duty to my country and God. To my mind, the most I have done is having helped with the little I could do to save the lives of the surrendered soldiers of Bataan and Corregidor. Sorry, Corregidor? I'm really sorry. That's a place. I don't know how to say it. I have offered myself as a guarantor of, for men later released by the enemy, that they commit no anti-Japanese act. Men who, if they had the guts left, would continue their resistance. I have acted as guarantors? Is that how you say it? Guarantors? Not only for the sake of humanity, but also to encourage them to fight again. If you happen to survive and I fail, tell our people that the women of the Philippines did their part also in making the ember sparks of truth and liberty alive to the last moment. Her husband is arrested in June of 1944. She is arrested two months later in August. Um, They're imprisoned at Fort Santiago. Uh, At some point, Antonio is executed in 1944, presumably because of his... um, assistance to resistance fighters and to prisoners of war. Um, On January 6, 1945, she was taken and held in a building occupied by the Japanese. She was last seen on the 6th of January, but she was weak and apparently beaten. Um, And it was, uh, there's no clear evidence of what happened to her, but it is presumed that she was executed and buried in an unmarked grave in the Manila Chinese cemetery, which Japanese, uh, they had used that as a burial site for many, um, she is not, she's not alone in this fate is what I will say. Mm-mm. She is with many other defiant people who resisted occupation. 
So I'm sorry that that's a bear downer, but we're going to try and get out of it. Okay, let's get out of this. So. Okay, I believe in you. She has a street and a building named after her. A monument has been dedicated to her memory. She has a road named after her in the Philippines. And she was on uh, one of the bills of money in the Philippines. Um, One of three people who were martyred by the Japanese armed forces in World War II. The Girl Scouts of the Philippines are still an organization to this day. They celebrate her every September 20th, um, which is her birthday, uh, with activities that hopefully create awareness of her stories particularly and um, what she sought to achieve in her lifetime. Um, You may have seen her on September 20th, 2018, because she was a Google Doodle. And she's um, seen leading a little uh, trio of little Girl Scouts. And she's dressed in her traditional Filipino dress, which she was famous for when she was traveling through um, the Americas. And last year would have been her 120th birthday. Let's see. Girl Scouts of the Philippines program today focuses on, quote, well-being, family life, heritage, and citizenship, world community, preparedness, economic self-sufficiency, arts, and environment. Center of the program is the Eight Point Challenge, a merit badge program, and the highest award is the Chief Girl Scout Medal, which was introduced in 1976. And just for your, uh, loving enjoyment this is how they (laughs) divide the five sections of girl scouts according to age so in america you got daisy brownie junior cadet senior right or senior cadet something like that but in the philippines get ready we're gonna go from the top down because the last one is so cute okay so the top is like ages 15 to 21 which oh my god if you're 21 and you're a girl scout kudos to you that is a commitment you're a cadet. If you're 12 to 15, you're a senior. 9 to 12, junior. Kind of boring. 6 to 9, star scout. Get ready. And if you're age 4 to 6, which please be in this in the Philippines, you're a twinkler. Because you're amazing. not a star yet. You're just twinkling. Isn't that cute? I hope they have glitter on their uniforms. <laughs> I bet they're so cute. That's like whenever you see like a daisy troop. Oh, you just can't be mad at them. They're so adorable. They're so little. Mm-hmm. And they have little vests on. They're blue and they're too big. Oh, they're so cute. Sounds adorable. So anyway, Girl Scouts of the Philippines still going on today. Amazing. You go, girl. Sorry, that Scout. was a bit of a downer in the middle, but like, did we come back out of it okay? Oh, yeah. I think okay. stars and twinklers... Twinkler, little twink, little Twinkies. I want to call them little Twinkies. <laughs> I bet they're so cute. <laughs> they're little badges. Yeah. yeah. Well, amazing. Thank you, yeah. Katie. That was fantastic. You're welcome. Happy Girl Scout Day. Happy Girl Scout Day. <laughs> Let's go eat some cookies. Okay. Thin mints only. Yes, please. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. 
Thank you for listening to Missing History.